Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's what you need to know. Who knows? Scientists investigating the origins of COVID seem to back China's theories. Impeachment day, the trial of former President Donald Trump gets underway, and Bitcoin buy-in, the Tesla-inspired rally accelerates. It's Tuesday, let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Great to be with you on a very busy Tuesday, a day when the impeachment trial of former President Donald Trump begins in Washington, D.C. An unimpeachable rally pauses, for now at least, on Wall Street and Bitcoin closes in on the once seemingly unreachable 50,000. Wow, take a look at that. News of Tesla's $1.5 billion Bitcoin investment continues to push the cryptocurrency higher, touching a record $48,000 per Bitcoin in yesterday's session earlier on. MicroStrategy CEO Michael Saylor, the crypto enthusiast who indirectly helped fuel the recent rally, joins us on the show later. He's the one who urged Elon Musk to invest in Bitcoin late last year. Saylor believes other CEOs will now be going crypto crazy with their own cash holdings soon too. We'll discuss Bitcoin, not the only asset at record highs though. US stocks are there too though. As you can see, a touch softer pre-market Europe under a bit of pressure here too. Despite positive December export numbers out of Germany, Asia though, as you can see, having a strong session overnight. Alicia Levine, analyst at BNY Mellon, called it the everything rally. If you remember yesterday, fueled by vaccines, stimulus hopes and recovery pricing, that all applies to what we're seeing in the commodity sector too, whether it's energy, precious metals, coffee, even soybeans, all rising in what Goldman Sachs is now calling a new super cycle. True or false? We'll discuss later in the show, too. Nothing simple about the outlook, though, and plenty of trials for the global economy ahead. But first, to one of the biggest unanswered questions out there. How did this all begin? Well, a team of investigators from the World Health Organization are saying coronavirus is unlikely to have leaked from a lab in Wuhan, China. However, uh, the findings suggest that the laboratory uh, incidents um, hypothesis is uh, extremely unlikely and to explain the introduction of the virus into the human population. Nick Payton Walsh joins us now with more. Nick, they also leave open the possibility that it was it was imported into China. Some eyebrows will be raised here. Just walk us through the details of what the investigators are saying. Yeah, I mean, this is a preliminary report, and it was one that was read out initially by the top Chinese official on this joint WHO mission that's been there for 14 days, looking at data, going to various sites. A couple of things we kind of knew. Yes, the first one, that it wasn't a lab leak as far as they can see. There was very little evidence of that from the beginning when it was first uttered by the then Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, pointing the finger uh, at a leak from a key laboratory in Wuhan. Also, they do believe that most 
most likely way this got to humans was through what they call an intermediary animal. Now, most scientists think that this virus originated in some form close to what we have now in humans uh, in bats. And then a middle animal, it was infected by a bat and then passed the virus on to humans. Those are the things that we thought were kind of the case and WHO mission confirmed, but they spent a lot of time on that stage offering up versions of what could have happened that were frankly very favourable to the Chinese government. They were pretty clear in their analysis that they could see little evidence to suggest that the virus initiated in a large form in a big outbreak before it was acknowledged by Chinese authorities in December. There was a suggestion by Peter Ben and Barak, the leader of the WHO mission, that there may have been an onset of symptoms in a patient in China in late November, but he wouldn't go into details there. They also spent a lot of time talking about frozen foods, which is extraordinary, frankly, because it is a key part of the Chinese government's narrative as to how possibly the disease got into China from outside of it. Let me get to that in a moment. But the scientists on the stage talked a lot about how frozen foods might possibly, in the seafood market in Wuhan that so many talk about as being kind of ground zero for this, they might have played a role in transmitting from diseased animals or possibly even bringing the virus into the country from outside. Which brings me to the next thing, which came up a few times as well, the possibility that they need to keep looking outside of China at blood samples or at possible frozen products that may have brought the virus into China. Now, there is very minimal evidence uh, for that at this stage. So much of the preponderance suggests that this transfer from animals, the intermediary transfer, may have occurred inside of China. But a lot of this discussion focused on what may have occurred that essentially passes the blame to outside of China. And so I think a lot of people will look at this preliminary report and say that it tells us a lot of things that we thought were the case. It clarifies a bit more about what they now believe, perhaps based on the data they've seen to be more likely. And it does, frankly, China a lot of favours too. It says they didn't drop the ball by missing earlier signs and it possibly even suggests that frozen food or other possible countries may have been where this originated and not something that occurred inside China itself. Very interesting early days, Julia. Early days, for sure. But it is one year after event. It's Chinese data controlled in terms of what we're seeing over there. So there will be some deep scepticism, even, yeah. even given that it's early days. Nick, great to have you with us. Nick Peyton Walsh there on that preliminary announcement there from the World Health Organization. All right, to a historic day now here in the United States, where the second impeachment trial for former U.S. President Donald Trump will begin in a few hours' time. John Harwood is in Washington for us. John, and my understanding is, first we have to debate whether it's even constitutional to hold this impeachment trial. That's where former President Donald Trump's defense is coming from, at least. That's the main aspect of his defense, and he has the advantage of 45 Republican senators, 45 out of 50, having already voted to say they think it is unconstitutional to hold this trial. That is the uh, least common denominator objection to what uh, the House Democrats are trying to do and, uh, in this impeachment trial, and it signals that it's very likely that President Trump is going to be uh, acquitted of these charges. Now, uh, we do expect that the um, Republicans making the unconstitutional argument will be defeated today. Four hours of debate, then there'll be a vote, and then we'll get on to the arguments, the substantive arguments about what the president did, not just on January 6th itself, but for a couple of months leading up to that after the election when he had indicated that he thought the election was stolen, which of course was not true, and incited the uh, opposition, the intensity of that opposition that exploded at the Capitol on January 6th and cost uh, five people their lives that day. 
I mean, that's the point. It, it shouldn't be partisan. It should be bipartisan. We should look at the events of that. It was the entire nation's capital that was attacked that day. But, John, as far as the likely acquittal of President Trump, if we get to the point of the impeachment trial, as you're saying we likely will, um, that remains the case. That's right. Look, this was an attack on American democracy itself. And it tells you something that so many Republican senators oppose even holding the trial about how radicalized the party has become. This is a long-term trend as the Republican Party has locked into a particular demographic, that is the uh, white working class voters that is shrinking as a share of the population, that feels increased uh, fear and anxiety over the fact that the country is changing culturally and economically. They're trying to resist that. President Trump tapped that uh, fear, that anxiety, uh, and it exploded on January 6th. And the uh, uh, Republican Party is having difficulty coming to grips with the fact that it is uh, positioning itself to, to some considerable degree at odds with the democratic process itself. Yeah, John Harwood, we'll watch that closely too. Thank you for joining us. All right, oil prices rising to their highest levels since before the pandemic began, with the global benchmark topping $60 a barrel on Monday. And that's not the only commodity making a comeback. John Defterius joins us now. John, great to have you with us. I mentioned a whole host of commodities, including precious metals that are making gains here as well. Goldman Sachs saying we're at this beginning of another commodity super cycle. What do you make of it? I think that's a bit uh, premature, but I have to say, Julie, the mood music has certainly changed really rapidly, right? Uh, It's far more upbeat, but there's no consensus out there. This is what I find most fascinating. Some are just saying this is a normal rebuild after the atrocious uh, 2020 that we saw today. Uh, The camp that says this is the beginning of a super cycle going back to uh, 20 years ago when we had this major demand uh, demand coming from the developing world. And the third camp, which is saying this is a V-shaped recovery, as in vaccine-induced recovery, supported by a lot of government spending. This seems to make the most sense. Just take off the United States, uh, for example. If Joe Biden gets his $1.9 trillion, that takes government spending in the United States to $5 trillion, or five times what we saw during the global financial crisis. We had $10 trillion in the front half of 2020 from the G7 countries alone. Extraordinary. Then you pick off one commodity, Julia. Let's take a a look back uh, for a year of uh, oil, right? We started February of 2020 at $54 a barrel. There was some softness. You know what happened? The pandemic set in. We had a price war between Saudi Arabia and Russia. Uh, That played out for five weeks and we went negative on US prices and below $20 a barrel for Brent. But think about it. If OPEC plus didn't come in with a cut of nearly 10 million barrels, and then nearly 8 million barrels, and they're still cutting, and then Saudi Arabia added another million barrels for February and March, would we be at $60 a barrel? OPEC Sursa said, boy, are we happy that Saudi Arabia decided to step up because we don't see the demand just yet. So if you roll back to pre-pandemic levels, the demand for oil globally was 100 million barrels a day. We got down to nearly 90. We're around 95 right now. Most don't think we'll get to 100 million barrels till well into 2021, depending how the vaccines go. So I think calling a super cycle is rather early indeed. Yeah, it could just be a slow start, John, and then it builds. So your point about timing, I think, here is a critical <laughs> one. But um, the point that they were making, and I, I do, 
if it happens, it does make sense to me, is this idea of the energy transition period that we're, we're going into now. And, and that will create some kind of supply gap. If, and Goldman Sachs is saying we could see one to two trillion dollars worth of infrastructure spending on an annual basis over the next decade as we move to things like electric cars, to greater use of solar panels. And that will create demand mm-hmm. for raw materials like copper, for example. I mean, you're the expert on this. Can you envisage that? And we have to leap over perhaps the next two to three years before we get into this super cycle. But that makes sense to me. Well, I love the way you asked it. Yeah, it does, actually. There's a couple of key factors at play here. Let's cover off inflation because a lot of this could just be a lot of investment funds piling in, worried about inflation, so they're going to hard and soft commodities. Mm. Uh, Lawrence Summers was talking about the threat of the former U.S. Treasury Secretary. I look back, inflation 1980 was 13.5%. Could we get there again? I don't think so with Janet Yellen as U.S. Treasury Secretary and the Federal Reserve Board being very cautious of not doing that yet again, right? Uh, But the other one is a lack of investment, which is what Goldman Sachs is talking about. Uh, We saw that copper's up 40% in six months, soybeans up 50%. Uh, And you could have a perfect storm of that underinvestment taking place. Again, if you single out oil, over the last week alone, you saw BP and Total go in together on a wind project in the UK. We know Shell's getting out of exploration as well. So there's a shortage of money going into oil exploration. This will favor those like Russia and the Gulf producers like Saudi Arabia because they're the low-cost producers, and they're still investing. But you made a great point here about uh, infrastructure spending. That will help the hard commodities in the future. You're going to need the aluminum and steel and copper for the energy transition for windmills and the solar panels of the future, Julia. I love the way you speak about this and the narrative. John Defterius. Oh, get your name right. John Defterius. Thank you so much. I always do that. <laughs> it's been a while. I just have to have you on more. JD's <laughs> fine. JD's stores. fine. <laughs> These are the stories making headlines around the world. The party of Myanmar's deposed leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, says police shot at protesters in the capital today, seriously injuring two people. Demonstrators across the country defied a new ban on rallies, turning out again to protest the military coup. A new UN report is accusing North Korean hackers of stealing hundreds of millions of dollars in virtual assets last year to fund the country's missile programs. It's thought the money was used to pay for nuclear and ballistic weapons and help keep North Korea's struggling economy afloat. All right, still to come here on First Move, testing school pupils across Massachusetts for COVID. I speak to the CEO of the company that's helping schools reopen safely. And shaping up shipping, the founder of Pandion and why every retailer should be able to ship as fast as Amazon. Stay with us. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where U.S. stocks look set to pull back slightly from record highs. For all the action, look at crypto. No break in Bitcoin's momentum, the cryptocurrency pushing to fresh records, fueled by news of Tesla's $1.5 billion investment. Crypto rival Ethereum also hitting all-time highs. The broader crypto space rallying to Bitcoin miner Riot blockchain and investment vehicle Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, all soaring on Monday too. Wow, look at those gains. Credit Michael Tesla, the CEO of business intelligence software firm MicroStrategy, with getting Tesla electrified on crypto. Saylor, whose firm currently owns more than $2.5 billion worth of Bitcoin, tweeted Musk back in December, urging him to sink Tesla's cash into the alternative currency too, saying 
quote Elon Musk, if you want to do your shareholders a $100 billion favor, convert the Tesla balance sheet from dollars to Bitcoin. That tweet helped lead to Tesla's big disclosure yesterday. Michael Saylor, who believes other CEOs will soon follow Musk's high-profile lead, joins us now. Michael, fantastic to have you on the show. How should we view Tesla's decision and what it means for others? Well, we're in a, an environment where the money supply is expanding at 15% a year or more, and we expect that to continue for the next four to eight years. So for corporations that are cash rich, cash is the dilutive asset on the balance sheet. It's losing 15% of its purchasing power every year. So by converting a non-performing asset into the best performing asset, which is Bitcoin, they convert a dilutive asset into a creative asset, and it's really good for shareholder value. So you're basically saying you prefer to have um, volatile appreciation versus stable depreciation if the value of the dollar is, is falling. I think that's well put. But what about the risk profile of, of Bitcoin? I mean, if you're talking about treasury departments for these corporates and Tesla perhaps is a separate issue. Traditionally, what they'd invest in is short term instruments, uh, hold it in cash because they want to preserve capital. You know, the world before March of 2020 was a different world where we had low monetary expansion and high interest rates. And the world for the next eight to 10 years looks like a world where we're going to have low interest rates, high monetary inflation. And it's nearly certain that cash on the balance sheet is going to lose 75 to 80 percent of its shareholder value. And so uh, switching it out to a digital asset uh, like Bitcoin, which has been going up more than 200% a year on average for the past decade, it, it might be short term, a little bit volatile, and certainly it's new, it's a paradigm shift. But if you're looking out for the long term interest of your shareholders, you'd, I think they would prefer that you double their money every six months, than lose 75% of their money with a guarantee over the next eight years. I mean, just do you think the Federal Reserve should be asking big questions of itself here where it's a better investment decision to invest in an asset that's, what, 13 years old versus something that the government itself issues? I mean, I know this is part of the thesis why people are getting so excited about Bitcoin and those that believe that fiat currencies are being debased. But the Federal Reserve surely has to take action here when this is the argument we're making. Well, you know, I think the story here is that Bitcoin is digital gold and it's engineered to be like gold, but superior to gold in all aspects. And it's also the world's first digital monetary network. So imagine a block of a billion dollars of gold that moves at the speed of light that you can program a million times a second in order to provide a framework for the 21st century finance system. This is monetary technology. And just like all big tech, it's making financial systems more efficient. I don't think it's going to replace the dollar. I think that what's happening is Bitcoin is replacing gold as a non-sovereign store of value running on a big tech network. How quickly do you think other corporates decide to invest in digital assets like Bitcoin? And do you recommend diversifying? It's not just about you know, Bitcoin. There are other options. It, you know, it, it took us months to work through the issues, and we uploaded our corporate playbook for Bitcoin and open sourced it to the rest of the world, and now it just takes days. Last week, we had 7,000 different firms attend our Bitcoin for Corporation Summit. Um, the, uh, 
the materials have gone viral with a quarter million or more views in just a matter of days. And I, I think um, a thousand companies adopted Bitcoin as digital gold after March of 2020, and there's a stampede on in 2021. So it's a story you're gonna hear. You know, if I look at you specifically, and you're a software company, and I look at your share price, and I look at the price of Bitcoin, and the two charts basically match. And, and so I guess a critic would look at this and say, actually, your fundamental business now has become a sideline, and you're a, you're a digital stock. What would your response be, Michael? We have two strategies. One strategy is to grow our software business, and that, that is a good business, makes a lot of money, and it is growing. And our second strategy is to acquire Bitcoin, and Bitcoin is the emerging dominant digital monetary network. It's going to be 100 times bigger than Google or Facebook. And when companies like Amazon plugged into the Internet, you know, people didn't say, are you an Internet company or a retail company? I, I think they're a technology company <laughs> embracing the future. Everybody's that, eventually going to plug into a digital monetary network like Bitcoin, just like everybody eventually plugged into the Internet. But how do those two businesses connect that, that you're now in? Every business has a P&L and it has a balance sheet. And uh, if your balance sheet is sitting in U.S. dollars that are yielding zero interest, losing 15% of their uh, value, they're depreciating. And so every single business can, can convert their balance sheet from a depreciating asset to an appreciating asset. That's good for every shareholder. So Look, if we were running a company in Argentina and I told you the peso was going to devalue against the dollar by 99%, every business in Argentina would be wise to convert their pesos into dollars on the balance sheet for the benefit of their shareholders. And that's such a great point to make, though I do love how we're comparing the United States now to Argentina. Well, you know, every company has, uh, has a, a basic balance sheet currency, whether it's euros or dollars or something. The difference after March is that uh, those fiat currencies are weakening at a more rapid rate. In essence, the cost of capital tripled after March. And so conventional treasury approaches that worked for a decade have to be reconsidered. And that's why you see a thousand companies embracing Bitcoin as digital gold. Yeah, it has to be part of your fundamental thinking as a business now. Um, I think you make a great point on that. Tesla is an S&P 500 company. What proportion of S&P 500 companies do you think switch to get, putting some of their cash on their balance sheet into digital assets and over what time horizon? Like, when do we get 5%, 10% of those companies doing this? I, because it I is a shift and it requires board approval. Yeah, public companies take longer. Sometimes they take three to six months, depending upon their situation. I think that this is a trend that's going to run for the next decade. And, uh, and this year, you're going to see many public companies do this. We saw Tesla. We saw Marathon. We saw Square. We saw MicroStrategy. I think that you'll see double, triple, quadruple that number come. And then I think every year that follows. Traditionally, uh, Bitcoin's growing 200 to 300% a year. I think if you crank in a 200% growth rate uh, across the, uh, all the various dimensions of growth, you'll see that continue for the next five years, and then it will taper down to 150 and 100 and then 50 and then 30 and then 20. It's a, it's a story for the decade. Yeah. How do you manage the quarterly plunge, let's say, in 
digital asset prices? Because we talked a little bit about the volatility at the beginning of the interview. If you're a, a corporate treasurer in a, in, a, in a big company that has to manage that cash flow and perhaps needs that cash, how do you manage that? Well, yeah, many, many companies have, uh, have assets and they don't need them in the coming 12 weeks. They're holding them uh, to capitalize the company. Like an endowment at a university, you're holding it for the long-term benefit of the customers and the shareholders and the employees. At MicroStrategy, we keep about $50 million in working capital and we convert all of our excess cash flows into our primary treasury reserve asset, which is Bitcoin. For companies that are cash flow positive, they really don't need uh, ready, uh, ready cash in large quantities because they're generating cash. What they need to do is to avoid debasing their treasury at a rapid rate. If, if money debases at 15% a year and if you generate 15% operating income, mm. you're working as hard as you can to generate nothing for the shareholders for the entire year because you're losing as much money in your treasury as you're actually generating from your business operation. So this is a cash sweeping into treasury so that the balance sheet accretes in value instead of diluting in value with time. Or even just holds flat, quite frankly. Um, yeah, lots, like what, by the way, all these companies, Apple, Google, Facebook, they generate massive amounts of cash. So if they take those ca that, that cash and invest it in an asset which is losing purchasing power at 15, 20% a year, they're destroying shareholder value. They don't, they don't, and by the way, the volatility is only over the course of days and weeks. If you look at volatility with a four-year time frame or a 10-year time frame, the only thing you see is it's just going up 200% every single year. And these companies like Apple are putting this money to work in, in better ways, just they haven't taken the uh, step into a crypto yet. <laughs> Michael, great to have I, you I with would us. Say, I have thank about you. 30 seconds. Go on, what were you going to say? Well, the traditional approach of companies was to borrow money and generate cash flow and buy their own stock back. But that means they're decapitalizing their company. Uh, another approach is to take that money and invest in an asset which is appreciating against their working currency. That provides a much firmer capital base for the company. Again, it's like if, if a university gave its entire endowment away, it wouldn't make it a better institution. And companies are... are should be building an endowment, building a capital base so that they can they can make good on their obligations to their employees and their customers and their vendors over the long frame of time. Yeah, the Federal Reserve should be shuddering. Michael Saylor, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for joining us and explaining um, your thoughts. The CEO of MicroStrategy there. All right, the market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running this Tuesday. A little bit of consolidation underway, I think, for the U.S. majors after rising to records Monday. The bulls proving once again that you don't need GameStop or crypto to boost your portfolio. Just a mere S&P 500 index fund will do the trick these days. I hope I haven't hexed it. Now, 10-year yields a bit softer, representing today's cautious tone too. A flight into the quality of bonds. Goldman Sachs now saying that the recent rise in bond yields, nothing to worry about just yet. It says interest rates would have to go much higher before derailing recent stock market gains. Now, speaking of rallies, a weaker dollar and stronger commodity prices have been boosting emerging market stocks too. An ETF, an exchange-traded fund, tracking the MSCI Emerging Market Index is up 9% year to date, and you can see that on the chart in front of you. 
Now, in terms of economic recovery, a question being asked all around the world is how to get children back into classroom safety. Well, here in the United States, President Biden called closed schools a national emergency. Yet testing is one solution and working to provide it is U.S. biotech firm Ginkgo Bioworks. The company was picked by the state of Massachusetts to provide mass testing to all its public schools every week. And joining us now is Jason Kelly, co-founder and CEO of Inco Bioworks. Jason, fantastic to have you with us. Just explain how your mass testing program works. Yeah, so the, the core idea, Julia, is, is to test a whole classroom at once instead of trying to test the, the students individually, right? And so it's a, it's a simple protocol. Students are actually uh, swab themselves. Uh, so it takes about 10 minutes for a whole classroom to do it. Uh, they walk to the front of the room, uh, put what's basically a Q-tip into a tube. Uh, school nurse or administrator comes by, closes the tube, puts it in a box, scans a barcode, ships it off to a lab. And it takes about 10 minutes in the classroom. Uh, it's non-disruptive. Uh, and importantly, it's, it's, you know, it ends up costing about a 20th as much because you get, you know, sort of 20 tests for the price of one. So it's, it's scalable at the level of a state. And so if the test, that pool test is negative, you can carry on with the class. What happens if there's a positive in there? Yeah, so there's a positive, then you follow up with just that classroom now and test those students individually to determine who's the positive in the pool. And then that student would go home and the rest of the class uh, could stay in class. That, that's, that's a protocol. Ultimately, schools could choose the best way to handle a positive pool, but we're seeing that done frequently. In Massachusetts, they're recommending a rapid antigen test, so a test that you get the result in 10 minutes to be done on, on those, say, 20 students to determine who the positive is. Yeah, it's brilliant. I mean, what feedback are you having from the schools? Because it's not just in Massachusetts. You're doing this for all sorts of schools. What feedback are you hearing both from the teachers? Because we hear fear, I think, from teachers that it's okay being in class, but everyone feels exposed. Yeah, this is, this is really important to us. So, so we wanted to make sure that this wasn't something that would, say, just work in a suburb of Boston. Uh, so, you know, we actually did a, a nationwide pilot. We tested over 100 schools 11 states, uh, including uh, sort of lower income districts, uh, majority minority communities in the U.S. Um, we, we, for example, we did uh, uplift schools down in the uh, Dallas-Fort Worth area in Texas, KIPP uh, in D.C. Um, and it's actually worked really well across a whole range of, of school districts. The, the, I think what people like is they, they feel empowered, you know, both the students and the teachers. Um, uh, Randy uh, Weingarten, who's one of the uh, heads of the AFT, which is one of the larger teachers unions here in the U.S. She wrote an editorial in USA Today with the Rockefeller Foundation just a couple weeks ago saying teachers want to come back, uh, but regular testing of students is is one of the ways to do that safely. And so, you know, I, I, I think this is, a, this is a really important thing to get right. Uh, it has not been an easy time to be an educator in the U.S. over the last year. Um, and I think this is one of the solves that could get the schools open. Yeah, and just for our international audience as well, the teachers' unions in this country are incredibly powerful politically, but also, and to your point, you know, they have legitimate concerns about safety at this moment. What conversations are you having beyond an individual state like Massachusetts? Because if this were widespread, to go to the point I made in the introduction here, a national emergency it is, we should be tackling it with mass testing like this. Yeah. You know, Julia, I think this is a core issue. Like you are, you know, you mentioned these teachers unions. I think you're seeing really frustrating, you know, difficult things, right? Chicago Teachers Union was threatening to go on strike. You know, I, there's a number of uh, educators in my family. My mom teaches at a pharmacy school and my sister-in-law is a, a PT at a, a public school district. This has been the hardest time to be an educator, right? And so the last thing we want to be doing is, 
is having fights with our, with teachers unions, right? You know, the, the answer is to find a scalable solution. And I think what's made it hard is people didn't believe there was a way to meet the demands that teachers want to open schools safely in a way that was inexpensive and, and scalable. And what Massachusetts is proving is that you can. And it's not going to be that much. I think in Massachusetts, the governor's plan will end up being probably you know, 20 to 30 million to open all the schools uh, this spring. You know, I think if you're a state, depending on your size, it's going to be somewhere between five, 10 to maybe up to 50 million to do this in the spring semester. That That's in the state budget. That could be done. I, I think I think what's been challenging is there hasn't been options for people. Uh, and what we and others like folks at MIT and, and the Broad Institute have been proving in Massachusetts is that this approach can actually work at scale. Uh, and that that's sort of the new news. Yeah, this is the key. It's fine having the money and that's hopefully being agreed at the federal level and it will filter down to the states. But actually having the science in place is um, the critical part of this as well. Jason, let's hope, fingers crossed, we can do this more broadly. What about life beyond COVID? You know, just for normal childhood diseases, things that go into a classroom and they things like chickenpox, for example, I think is a, yeah. another one. Do, is this is this a system that could perhaps be used to protect classrooms beyond COVID? Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting idea. I, you know, I don't know. But like, we've been very focused on this just current crisis, right? You know, I, yeah. I think, you know, COVID is really the thing that's pulling us out of the norm. I think you could imagine a world like, for example, you're seeing this in cancer, where you're looking to catch, you know, the earlier you catch cancer, the more uh, successful you are at treating it. So you're trying to see a move where you don't end up with that cancer diagnostic just because you got, once you got symptoms, it's sort of too late. Could you create screening systems to catch that much earlier? Yeah, I, I think absolutely. If you had this sort of thing regularly in people's lives, you could start to, to look for many more diseases where when you catch them early, it helps. Cancer is a great example, but so obviously is the case of infectious disease. The earlier you catch it in a school and can pull it out, then the, the more limited the impact is. Um, and we are seeing very low levels. You know, if we look across all our schools, something like, you know, one in 200 uh, kind of prevalence, much, much lower than what you see at people driving up to the sort of drive-in uh, testing with symptoms. So that that's such a great point. The, this, the data that this is providing is so critical as well to understand what is actually going on in schools as well and what you're finding. Yeah, it, that's right. It gives them, and that's information for teachers and administrators to, you know, like the, the comments we hear back is it's the first time it's felt normal since March. You know, I heard that from, from a, um, a principal of a school recently, right? Because they know the level, you know, otherwise, other than just being afraid and not knowing what what's actually going on, you have the information, you have the data to know, hey, the, you know, these classrooms are, are clear or if there's one, we find who the person is and, and we send them home so they can be isolated and it works great. Right. And and that information is empowering. It's what we're going to need to open our workplaces and schools quickly in this country. Yeah. And get people back to work as well who are playing the role of carers. Jason, great yeah, I'm to getting have tired you with of Zoom. I don't know about you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not lucky enough to have children, but yes. Um, Jason Kelly, great to have you with us, co-founder and CEO of Ginkgo Bioworks. Thank you. All right, still ahead. We've all heard the expression to cut out the middleman, but one entrepreneur is embracing that role. Next up, we speak to the CEO who aims to deliver on deliveries themselves. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Around the world, many of us have found ourselves more reliant on e-commerce deliveries because of COVID-19. And while Amazon leads the way, 
One of its former employees has jumped on a gap in the market. Scott Ruffin is the founder and CEO of Pandian, which works with retailers to get you your parcel as quickly as possible. And thanks to its expertise in logistics and supply chains. And Scott joins us now. Scott, fantastic to have you with us. Just explain what the vision of the firm is and what makes Pandian unique. Yeah, Pandion is the first purpose-built shipping network for e-commerce. Uh, we're powered by machine learning, intelligence, and data in order to make sure that we can get packages delivered to uh, e-commerce consumers on time, a much higher percentage of the time. Uh, we're really focused on the middle mile. That's the portion between um, where the package originates and right before it gets on that truck that goes to your home. So explain the data part of this, because I do think this is critical. You route packages in real time rather than deciding, look, I'm going to send this package in this manner. It will get there on this date. You change your mind in order to be most yeah, efficient. Absolutely. So yeah, go ahead. No, please. Yeah, so absolutely. So we're building out algorithms that will allow us to look to see what's happening in the network and what, how packages are behaving and make decisions every step of the way to optimize the path of that package. So it does two things. One, we can make the most economical choice to send it um, um, the path that, that costs the least amount of money. Um, but in addition to that, and more importantly, it allows us to avoid these hot spots um, and that cause a package to be delayed. So retailers today, they'll promise to a particular day, we're going to deliver your package on Thursday. And you know, when consumers don't get that package delivered that day, um, it's a real negative experience. And quite frankly, it really hurts uh, their re repeat, repeat rate and the long-term value of that customer. So by us avoiding those hotspots and those delays, by making those optimization decisions every step of the way, we're able to improve that on-time delivery rate substantially for our customers. Where do you fit in, in the market at this moment? I mean, we've got what, Amazon with 40% of the US e-commerce market, you've got UPS and you've got FedEx. And what we've seen throughout COVID is that even Amazon struggled with the demands that they had. UPS and, and FedEx had to raise rates. Where do you see yourself fitting? Yeah, so we're really um, um, providing services for that other 60% of the market that's that's not Amazon. Um, so <laughs> all consumers, all of those customers can have the same type of you know positive delivery experience that Amazon has really set that bar for, um, at least traditionally. Obviously, there's some some parts in COVID where you know Amazon might have had some some delays, but have really they've really invested to get that back up to a um, um, pre-COVID type of levels. Um, you know, last uh, last week, Carol Tomei, the CEO of UPS, said in her earnings call that in the peak season last year in 2020, uh, there was roughly you know three million packages per day of a shortfall between uh, the capacity and the demand um, that they had available to them, um, and that she saw that continuing throughout 2021. And what we're looking to do is to create new capacity um, and provide an alternative for all of these retailers so they can have the same type of customer-obsessed uh, delivery experience uh, that many of the Amazon's customers have. So, I mean, you worked at Walmart, so you're talking like the Walmarts of the world, perhaps Wayfair, Target, for example. You can allow them to uh, compete with Amazon for the speed of delivery. That's exactly right. Um, I mean, there's uh, uh, there's hundreds of retailers in a variety of different sizes, uh, merchants, a variety of different sizes um, that fall into that 60 percent of the U.S. market that uh, um, Amazon doesn't own today. So how many packages can you handle? And 
Is the well, cost going to be equal? Yeah, so our intent is to have very highly competitive cost points um, to what the same type of service offering would have with with other players that are out there. Um, we're, right now, we're building out the, the 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 early pieces of the team, the technology, et cetera. Um, and by the end of this year, our plan is to have a handful of buildings cover 30 to 50 percent of the U.S. population um, and roughly five to 10 million packages uh, per month um, by the end of 2021. And then uh, 2022 will be a big growth year where we'll continue to grow from there. Wow. And you don't see any slowdown in e-commerce spending? No, I don't. I mean, the, the, <laughs> the stat that I mentioned from um, um, Carol Tomei in her earnings report last week is a, a, a good data point. You know, in addition, the Washington Post recently you know, had an article that talked about how baby boomers are now ordering online when they weren't before and they don't in, in anticipate that will ever change, uh, that that'll continue you know, post pandemic. Um, our thesis is that we're going to have significant e-commerce growth on top of that Uber level of growth that we had last year in 2020. Fantastic. Scott, great to have you with us. So Scott Ruffin there, the CEO of Pandian. We look forward to watching your progress. Thank you for joining us today. All right, coming up on First Move, Chippergeddon automakers being hit by a global ship chip shortage. That's next. First move, Japanese automaker Honda's quarterly profits jumping nearly 70%. They also raised full-year profit forecast by more than 20%. Honda's rosier outlook comes as many automakers idle production lines because of a shortage of microchips, as Christy Lou Stout has been investigating. It's so easy to take them for granted. The tiny silicon-based semiconductors that fuel our modern lives, our smartphones, our laptops and our cars. Now, the average car has between 50 to 150 chips that are used to monitor important engine and safety systems, along with GPS navigation or driver assistance when you try to parallel park. But when the pandemic hammered auto sales last year, top chip makers shifted capacity away from car makers to gadget makers, resulting in a critical shortage of car chips that's been called Chipageddon. One million cars could actually be lost uh, in the coming months. So that's quite a lot. If you take the average value of a car, which might be, say, what, 20,000, 30,000 maybe dollars, it would actually lead to about 20 to 30 billions in lost revenue. There is a growing list of automakers cutting production because of the chip crunch. In Japan, you have Subaru, Toyota, Honda and Nissan. And in the U.S., Ford and GM. Now, in a statement, GM says this, quote, despite our mitigation efforts, the semiconductor shortage will impact GM production in 2021. We're currently assessing the overall impact, but our focus is to keep producing our most in-demand products. As the chip crunch disrupts production, analysts say it may delay a global recovery in the auto sector. U.S. senators are urging the White House to take action. In a letter sent earlier this month, 15 U.S. senators from auto-producing states warned that the shortage threatens their post-pandemic economic recovery. It's also a diplomatic issue. To resolve the shortage, the U.S. is working with Taiwan, home of TSMC, the world's largest contract chip maker. Uh, the Taiwan chip giant says the auto chip shortage is its top priority, saying this, quote, TSMC is currently expediting these critical automotive products through our wafer fabs. While our capacity is fully utilized with demand from every sector, TSMC is reallocating our wafer capacity to support the worldwide automotive industry, unquote. As Taiwan pledges help, 
A warning from the other chip-making giant in Asia, Samsung Electronics says the auto chip shortage could hit smartphones. And if you're planning a new purchase, consider this. If you need something, just buy it now if it's on stock. Otherwise, unfortunately, you'll have to wait another three to six months according to our latest working estimates. Huge ripple effects are being felt across tech, auto manufacturing, and the global economy, all from a tiny piece of silicon. Christy Liu Stout, CNN, Hong Kong. And finally, the chance to walk in presidential shoes, literally. Well, that's if you happen to have a mere $25,000 going spare, that is. Sotheby's is offering collectors a slam dunk of an opportunity selling these Nike sneakers trainers created exclusively for Barack Obama. This is the sample pair, the only other pair actually being owned by the former president, and these are in pristine condition. The shoes were created back in 2009, recognizing Obama's love for basketball. If you're interested, they're U.S. size 12 and a half and will go on sale on Friday. Maybe a nice gift, perhaps, for Valentine's Day. Ouch. All right, that's it for the show. I'm Julia Chesley. Stay safe. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.